Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Last week, guys, we kind of deviated from the sermon series that we were in and talking about heresies and half-truths. We had been walking through kind of Uh, interesting theology and interesting doctrine that has been kind of perpetuated in modern evangelicalism. And it's something as a pastor, I felt the need to address. We talked about a number of different things from everything from moral therapeutic deism to how the church should respond to LGBTQ issues and and, and kind of everything in between uh, that I felt needed a biblical response based on what the culture is kind of deeming as good. And as much as it's interesting, uh, I, I shared last week it was taxing to continue to kind of preach on things that are wrong and maybe just temporarily highlight things that are right. And so uh, I talked about what is the church's response to all of it. If we were going to wrap up all the wrong false doctrine that exists out there and how detrimental and how terrible it is. And it seems like there's just an onslaught coming against the people of God with everything that the culture perpetuates as true. How do we respond to that? And my simple message wasn't some kind of like 12 point systematic way for us to combat culture in some kind of culture war. It was Paul's simple response to preach Christ crucified. And when the greatest trend right now is some sort of version of woke Christianity of how we have to kind of bend the message of the gospel and bend the message of the cross to fit into cultural acceptance, uh, that seems to be what a lot of people are doing. Um, we as the men and women of God and us as a church that we believe needs to be founded on the word of God have chosen to take the, the somewhat simpler approach of simply preaching Christ crucified. And so last week we embarked on a new sermon series that I've entitled The Message of the Cross. And I, I made kind of a disclaimer that I didn't know how long we would be here. But can I tell you, if this is the only message that I preach from here until I die, it would be a good message. If you only ever came to this church and let's say, uh, I pastor here for the next 50 years, whatever. Let's, everybody, wow, why was that funny, Lisa? Gosh. <laughs> let's say here, let's Lisa because you're going to pick on me. Let's say I preach here until you die. Another 12 years. Oh, dear God, let it be longer than 12 years, Lisa. There is power in the tongue. There is life in... Don't speak that. But anyway, (laughs) if I only ever preached and you came here and sat under me, I could guarantee you it would be worth your while to hear the message of the cross preached week in and week out from here on to eternity. The good thing is we have deeper projects where we can get into the deeper nitty gritty stuff that seems like, oh, this is important. But if all we ever focused on was Jesus and the cross, that would be okay. That'd be okay. And I, I, I feel like I could stand before God knowing that I accomplished what he set me out to do if I stayed true to preaching the message of the cross. 
And so I joked about this being a 17-part sermon, and who knows, it could be two, it could be three. I know it's at least three because I'm preaching part two today, and I know what I'm preaching for part three. I don't know what four through 17 is going to be yet, but we'll see. I'm saying all this um, because Paul makes this crazy statement and we, we, we looked at it last week, and I, I'm really reviewing a lot of last week, and I want to dig in a little bit deeper to some of the things that we talked about last week, because I didn't get to make a very important point, or at least drive it home the way that I would have wanted to. I just didn't have time, and I felt the Holy Spirit even nudge me last week that it needed more time for it to sink in, uh, for it to impact us than trying to tack it in at the end of a sermon, if that makes sense. And so I'm going to do a little bit of review from last week as we walk through these verses. And some of it may be, may, may be similar or familiar, but I don't believe that it's something that I need to apologize for today because the message of the cross is still the most important message that humanity has ever received. But when we were looking at 1 Corinthians last week, if you want to turn with me there, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians starting in verse 17. Paul makes this a crazy statement in, verse, in chapter 1 and verse 17 where he tells us that the cross of Christ can be rendered powerless. Now, if I were just to make that statement in and of itself, you would say, that's absurd, Nate. When we're, we're singing songs about there's power in the blood, there is power in the name of Jesus. And when I tell you that the cross of Christ can be made powerless, or the way that Paul would say it, he says that it could be emptied of its power. It's like, Paul, what are you talking about, dude? That's ridiculous. That doesn't make much sense. Like, no, Paul, you're actually wrong on this. There is power in the cross, right? And but how does he say that it's emptied of its power? How does he say that it's rendered powerless? If we read in 1 Corinthians 1.17, we see that Christ did not send Paul to baptize, but to preach the gospel, which he would later define as the message of the cross, not with wisdom or eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You see, it is possible to preach the gospel. It's possible to preach the cross and have it not be powerful. That's what happens when we try to supplement the message of the cross with something we feel like is more palatable to the culture. When we try to package it in to something and we make allocation for different thoughts and philosophies that are contrary to the message of Jesus and try to package it up all nicely so it's more acceptable to the human psyche. When we try to do that, when we try to maybe add or what I fear is the greatest thing that we do in today's culture is remove pieces of the gospel. And we remove things that Jesus said in order for it to get along with everybody's current ideology in order to try to make Jesus palatable. And we have to understand something. Jesus didn't come to be added as an addition to your life as an addition to your current worldview, as an addition to what you think you should do or how you think you should live. Jesus is, does not exist as an addition to your kingdom, but he comes as Savior and Lord to overthrow what you've got going on to make sure that, you, that he reigns supreme as Lord of your life. Too many people are content with making Jesus Savior without making him Lord. And that's something that we cannot 
do. We cannot preach Jesus merely as the man that saves you from your sin, but is okay with you staying the way that you are without embracing him as Lord who actually demands something from you. That part of Jesus just doesn't jive with most people. You're going to tell me that there is a God that loves me, that wants me, and that died for me, but he also wants something from me? Oh, that's too far. That's too much. But the reality of it is, I believe that many people, many philosophies in this age are kind of perpetuating this notion that we can have Jesus as Savior without having him as Lord. And that's simply not true. When we begin to preach like that, we see Paul talking about it being emptied of its power. And I, I went into a little more in depth on what that actually means, talking about a stumbling block last week. But I wrote this this morning as I was just kind of praying over these passages of scripture, I said that the message of Jesus Christ needs nothing added to it, and it certainly doesn't need anything subtracted from it, because when we attempt to preach a woke Jesus to appease the demands of society, we remove any potency from Calvary. The message of the cross isn't supposed, isn't supposed to make sense to the carnal mind. I mean, just think about it for a second. I mean, it's absurd when we think about God becoming a man to die for you and I. I mean, think about yourself. <laughs> that, that's just, that's mind-boggling to me. If I were God, I would have chose some other way, right? I would have come some different way that would have made a lot more sense in order to accomplish his purpose. Where, you know, he didn't have to suffer, you know, where he didn't have to hang on a cross, where he didn't have to suffer shame and humiliation. If I were Jesus, if I were God, thank, thank God that I'm not, I would have found a different way. But that's the absurdity of the cross. That's the foolishness of the cross here. That he chose to come in a way which man would have never chosen. To demonstrate his love. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. But as we continue on in 1 Corinthians, and this is where we were last week. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says that the message of the cross is foolishness. It's not supposed to make sense to the carnal mind. To those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And, and I feel like it's important to highlight a point that I made last week. But the fact is that all of humanity is divided into two categories here by this verse. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And the cross of Christ makes no sense to those who are perishing. It's not supposed to. People look and they laugh and they mock the cross because it doesn't make sense and it doesn't add up. But to those who are being saved, to those who embrace the message of the cross, there is a promise of salvation and we don't see a middle ground here, right? We don't see somebody that can just say, oh, well, it kind of makes sense, but not really, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's just utterly foolishness. No, 
there is either perishing or not. There is either saved or not. There isn't a place for halfway for somebody to make a, make a decision to respond to the message of the cross. And I want to warn you with that today. I very much truly believe that there is only one response. Uh, that there, well, I believe there's only one worthy response to the cross. And every other response winds up in perishing. Sounds harsh. Sounds uh, intense. It sounds crazy. And that's because it is because the cross is a harsh thing. But as we go on into verse 19, we're going to spend some time just breaking this down. In verse 19, we, we continue to read what, uh, what Paul was writing here. And he quotes the prophet Isaiah. And he says, for, I, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. And in verse 20, it says, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look to wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We see Christ defined here as the power and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. I want to hone in very quickly, very shortly here on verse 21 where it says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. I think it's always an important question for us to ask is what actually pleases God? I think it's easy for us to kind of go about our lives and, and we're, we're, we're kind of selfish beings by nature. We're attracted to things of pleasure, right? I would rather eat a chocolate bar than a stick of celery. Some of you are weird and that's okay. I know Adam would probably eat a stick of celery before he'd eat a chocolate bar. But uh, man, I'm unraveling my point here for no apparent reason. Um, but in all honesty, right, we, we're creatures of pleasure and comfort, that's how we're naturally geared. That's how the human kind of being uh, responds to this thing of life. We want to be comforted. We want to experience pleasure, do we not? Um, and I think a lot of the times we, uh, we place our pleasure in front of that of God's. And I, I just want to submit to you the thought, submit to you the the, 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 the thought here for just a moment. It's possible that what brings you pleasure is not what brings God pleasure. And in fact, the things that bring you pleasure may actually displease God. And that's where we get this great dichotomy of what do we do, especially when the philosophy of this age is treat yourself, right? Do whatever makes you feel good. Respond to however you feel is the way that you should go. And then all of a sudden, right, we become our own moral compass. 
We become the dictators of what's good and what's wrong based upon what's pleasing to us rather than what's pleasing to God. And what we see here is that there is something that pleases God uh, very intensely, and it's the foolishness of preaching. The foolishness of preaching the cross, right? And it's by that people are saved. That brings God the utmost pleasure is when Jesus is represented well. When the message of the cross is represented well, people are saved and that pleases God. That's cool to me, friends. I, that brings me a lot of comfort that God isn't just pleased by the size of my church. Right? He isn't pleased about how many bucks came in in the offering plate. He's not pleased by uh, how many people listened to our podcast this week. But he's, well, I mean, I guess you could go on to preaching the cross. And yes, he's pleased when the cross is preached and people are saved. So if you're listening to this podcast, God can be pleased through this. If I do a good job of handling his word. It's a big relief for me, right? <laughs> I don't need a lot of extra pizzazz in order to be faithful to Jesus. But you see, one of the overarching themes in 1 Corinthians, uh, as you kind of study the whole book, is one of Paul warning the church not to treat the gospel, the Christian message, the message of the cross, like another form of worldly wisdom. You see, the Greeks particularly prided themselves as a center of forward philosophical thought. The word wisdom that it, we encounter in all of Paul's writings here, especially in 1 Corinthians and throughout that age, was a, a Greek word called sophia. And uh, it's, it's just a, it's a strong sense of worldly wisdom. And that's why we see God contrast, uh, contrast these things in Scripture. That's why Paul goes to such great lengths that... We don't necessarily have time for today to contrast human wisdom with godly wisdom that we find in Christ. But in ancient Greece, this was kind of popular. You guys went to school, right? Uh, most of you probably went to school, at least went to high school. Um, maybe, maybe they taught this in middle school. I don't, I don't really remember. But a lot of the ancient Greek philosophers that are really popular, a lot of their thinking still stands today that really pioneered Western philosophy if you will, right? We've got like Socrates and Aristotle and Plato. You guys remember those guys? Uh, you all see like busts of them online and whatnot. I was going to like put pictures of them. Like those were the popular voices to listen to in Paul's day. They were, they were a little bit dead. Um, they, were, they were a couple years dead <laughs> by the time Paul and Jesus showed up, you know, like hundreds, year, hundreds of years or so. But they're, they're, they're kind of, they were like the pinnacle of what was popular, and they really kind of, uh, they, their thinking and their thoughts were very much regarded as high as any religious thought of the day, right? And so when Christianity comes onto the scene in the midst of this Greek culture, when Jesus busts in with this message of the cross, the Greeks were looking for a way to have it make sense in the world that they were in. It was supposed to be this high philosophical thing in order to follow Jesus. And they were trying to elevate the message of the cross into this place where it contended with the philosophers of that age. But that was never the intention 
of the gospel. That was never the intention of Jesus, was for it to have it compete with different worldviews or different uh, philosophies. The message of the cross and the message of Jesus was always supposed to overtake those things. And we see that kind of play out here. But we, we look here, because um, I was talking about this particular theme that exists within 1 Corinthians, um, and it was imperative to Paul that the Corinthian church realized that to be a Christian is distinctly different from all other forms of wisdom, all other forms of Sophia that existed in the melting pot of culture that was found in Corinth. You see, Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle, they, they probably had pretty decent things to say. I don't remember high school. I don't remember anything that they really said. Um, but I know that they were foundational to Western philosophy, and they, they probably had some things that were halfway decent, like be nice to people. I don't know. Uh, but they weren't the words of life. And even the wisest thing that probably came, even the wisest thing that would have come out of one of these guys' mouths failed to pale, uh, it paled in significance to the things that Jesus said. And we also know that their death certainly didn't bring about any sort of salvation for mankind. See, the message of the cross and what Jesus came and did uh, can't be just summed up with some kind of definition of moral. My wife and I were uh, watching this documentary on C.S. Lewis the other night, and it reminded me of a, a, a quote that's uh, famously attributed to him. It's not just, he actually said it, so I don't know why he said it, like it's attributed to him. It is him. Um, but one of the things that he would say, and I, I think it's worth weighing over and listening to this morning, he writes this. I am trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. That I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we cannot say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. <laughs> he would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You cannot shut him up for a fool and spit at him and kill him. You can, or you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not attend, did not intend to. I, I, I find that quote particularly fascinating, especially in light of what was taking place in Corinth in the day. But you see other forms of wisdom, other religions, other sophias, if you will, all exhort man to reach up to God, to nirvana, to heaven, to some peak of reincarnation and grasp hold of it through their own efforts by what you can do. The gospel, on the other hand, Christianity gives this message that is quite different because it's the only religion where God reaches down to man. It's no longer about you trying to gain 
acceptance by what you do into some perfect reality. It's God himself, perfection incarnate, reaching into you based upon what he did. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's not just about what you've done. (laughs) It's all about what he's done and what he did on the cross. And so I want to continue this morning to expound on a simple thought, simple truth that I simply, that's my introduction. That was just kind of supposed to be the rehash of last week. But it's okay because I I really just have one main point today. And when I say it, you're going to be like, that was your sermon? That's what you had for us today? And my, my, my simple point is this, that the message of the cross is God's ultimate demonstration of love for humanity. I would say this, that God loves you. You're like, wow, I knew that. I went to Sunday school. I've read that on bumper stickers. And I can't think of something that is so simple yet equally profound. I can't think of something else that I could say that, that is so simple in nature, but the, the, the ramifications of it are beyond extraordinary. And as a Christian, as somebody, I, have, I, I was just having this conversation with somebody the other day. As of, uh, as of like three weeks ago, I have now officially served Jesus more than half my life. More than half the time I've been alive, I have been following, surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus. And for me, that was pretty cool. That was a big deal. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm awesome. <laughs> the last half of my life has been infinitely better than the first half. Really, the last seven years have been infinitely better than the rest of my life because I met my wife and we got married seven years ago, uh, a couple days ago. Our our anniversary was the 18th, and it was awesome. Um, Thank you for all the kind words that y'all shared. And I I share my testimony often, but I'll share a part of it here because it it helps illustrate the point that I want to make this morning. Um, I grew up with uh, parents that were both heroin addicts. Uh, My mother was a prostitute in order to uh, kind of support her addiction. And I say this because oftentimes when I share my story, I feel like my parents kind of get a little bit of a bad rap, um, if you will. Like, uh, they kind of get thrown under the bus because you can't lead with a story like, oh, my parents were heroin addicts and my mother was a prostitute and I grew up in the projects without much and have it be like, oh, I'm so sympathetic for his parents. But the reality of it is my, my parents did love me, even in spite of the demons that they faced. And, I, and looking back on it now, I feel like I have a clearer picture, but it didn't always feel like they loved me, right? When I was, you know, 13 and couldn't understand why my mom had a different guy over every week and, and I couldn't have friends over and, and kids weren't allowed to come over and hang out at my house because of my parents' addiction. Didn't feel like love. And I remember uh, one evening where my mother uh, very very intently sat me down just to tell me that she loved me. And uh, I, wish I, I wish I things had kind of played out maybe a, a little bit differently in that conversation, but I remember the naivety and the frustratedness of a, of a teenager responding to my mom, saying, Mom, if you really loved me, 
you would stop doing dope. If you really loved me, you'd get yourself checked into rehab. If you really loved me, you would stop the drugs, right? And that was something that I struggled with, and I carried that with me through my adolescence, and, and some of that was naivety. If you guys have had a friend or a family member that battles addiction, you understand that that is, uh, that is a hard thing to say, but the reality of it was I didn't just want to hear from my parents that they loved me. I wanted to see it demonstrated. I wanted to see it fleshed out in action. It, it, to put it in a different perspective, uh, maybe that that would, would help you connect with is, you know, I can tell my wife that I love her 200 times a day. And she would be happy with that, right? But at some point in time, if I don't help out with the dishes, if I don't take out the trash, if I'm not there to help with the kids or I'm spending all my time with other people or if you even want to take it to the extreme, if I'm talking to other women or, or doing other things, I can't just show up at, a, at the door and say, hey, I love you and have everything be okay, right? She wants me to, yes, tell her that I love her, but she also wants to see it demonstrated in action, right? That is something that, that, that love necessitates. It necessitates uh, demonstration, right? Not just vocalization. And that's one of the things that I love about the God that we serve, we're familiar with John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus said this while he was still alive. He said this in John chapter 3 in his discussion with Nicodemus. He told everyone that God loved them. And the entire Old Testament is filled with expressions of God's love for humanity. We see this fleshed out. We see the words of Jesus promising the love of God. But I'm very thankful that he didn't just stop there. He didn't just stop with saying that God loves you. But we have this beautiful truth that God has demonstrated his love for us through his death on the cross. Romans 5, 6 through 9, gives us this beautiful picture. Paul would say, for when we were still without strength, talking about being dead in sin, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone, even, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Verse 8, though. 
but God demonstrates his own love towards us. I love the fact that it doesn't say God demonstrated his love. It wasn't a one and done thing. We know that he died one time once and for all uh, for our sin. But we see that the act of what he did on the cross is a continual sign. It's a continual demonstration from every age since to every age to come that God loves us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I think it's interesting here that there is great weight upon, placed upon who Christ died for, being sinners, <laughs> being us. <laughs> not those that had it all together, not those who had figured it out, not those who were halfway decent or halfway moral, but for those who were dead and trespass and sin, those who had done nothing right, <laughs> those are who Jesus died for. Before we ever had an opportunity to get right with God, he took it upon himself to make a way for us to do so. You see... I think it's interesting. If that cross was bigger back there, I'd probably drag it down right now and use it as an illustration. But it'd be kind of weird because it would be like little Jesus if I was trying to carry it around and really fit home a point. So I'm going to not do that as I was going to go on. But we think about the cross. We think about the shame that was associated with it. The willingness of a man who was innocent without blemish to carry his cross, to be crucified at the hands of evil and wicked men, to suffer unimaginable agony, I would say is the pinnacle of human hatred. The human heart hated Everything that Jesus stood for so much that we put it on a cross. We put him on a cross. We spat at him. We, we mocked him. We ridiculed him. God himself, who had done nothing wrong. I believe that the cross and the crucifixion of Jesus signifies the height of man's hatred and sin. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of things wrong with sin. We can think of long lists, and we, we like to say, well, no sin's worse than the other, but that's not true. There are, there are sins that are worse than others. They all separate you from God, so they're not worse in that sense. But, I mean, if you're murdering children, uh, I'm going to say that that is 100% worse than if you uh, took a, a donut without paying for it, right? We'll agree with that. It's not worse in the sense that it separates you from God, but it's bad. But if you were going to try to think of the, the worst possible thing, the worst sin imaginable, I, I can't think of anything more grievous, more blasphemous 
than mocking the God of all the universe as he hangs upon a cross to die for you and I. A God that comes and takes on humanity to walk with us and is so different yet so similar that it unnerves us and it unsettles us and it takes away our excuse that we crucify him and we put him up on a cross and say, we will kill God. But this is that, that foolishness that turns out to be wisdom that God turns it on its head and the very method of death that mankind chose for God, God chooses to extend as an invitation to mankind. And so while the cross, I believe, is a picture of the height of man's hatred and sin, we see even in greater measure it being the height and perfect picture of God's love for humanity. There is no greater demonstration of God's love for you than the cross. There is no greater proof than Jesus on the cross for you. He loves you. He loves humanity. All this kind of brings into my mind very simple thought. In the same way that I, want, I wanted my parents to walk out their love for me with action. In the same way that my wife wants me to back up those words, I love you, with actual deeds, with actual things, with actually doing something. I believe that Jesus also modeled this, saying, I love you, and he demonstrates it in the greatest way possible, right? By going to the cross, that I believe our response has to be more than just, I love you, Jesus, in word, but it also needs to be in deed. I think of what Jesus called out the Pharisees for in Matthew chapter 15, Verses 8 and 9, he's actually quoting the prophet Isaiah here, but he says, These people draw near to me with their mouths. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. If essentially what he's saying is that talk is cheap, right? If we're going to use the cliche, it's not just about what you say. It actually does matter what you do. So this is actually going to set us up because I, I, I struggle with some of these kind of abstract concepts that exist when we're, we're talking about spiritual things. I don't know if anybody else does that, but I, I can listen to something like this and I can be really engaged and mesmerized, but then walk away wondering, well, what does that actually mean for the here and now? You know, Monday morning when I get up and go to work, how, do, how, does, how does God's love for me actually change something? If, if Pastor Nate says that, that that love needs to be demonstrated, that there has to be a response, well, what does that look like? 
And I'm really excited to get into uh, some of the things that Jesus continues to talk about in, the, in terms of the power of the cross. And uh, if I could give you a hint, we're going to look at uh, what Jesus has to say about the cross next week and our call to it. But if I, uh, if I could maybe just end with one passage of scripture here. It's not in my notes, and so sorry for those you guys doing media. But I, I sincerely believe that love for Jesus needs to be demonstrated. It needs to be walked out in the same manner that he demonstrated it for us. In fact, Paul would tell us in Ephesians chapter 5 that we're to be imitators of God as dear children, that we are to walk in love just as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us. So we're to walk as Christ has loved and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Our, our response because of what God's done for us is to respond in like manner, to walk in love, and to give ourselves as an offering, as a sacrifice to God. There's a lot more to that, and I'm excited to break that down. And I'm looking forward to it. But if I had one simple point to make this morning, that I can't overemphasize enough, that we can never graduate from, that we can never move past, is that God loves you. And I say that, and I fear that some of you may have uh, misheard me. <laughs> or at least it didn't connect the way that it needs to. Because I know for a long time I would hear things like God so loved the world. And I would believe that. There was never a doubt in my mind that God loved each and every person and he died for everybody. But it's hard to put me at the center of that narrative. And let's, let's call it feigned humility or something like that. But it was easy for me to believe that God loved everybody else. But I struggled with the fact to believe that God could actually love me. And I know that because I know the worst parts of me. I know the things that you'll never know about me. And if you're anything like me, I think that oftentimes you can probably think the same way. You, you know what you've done. You know the terrible things that you've done. And I think that's where the beauty of Christ dying for us, why we were still sinners. Because he loved us. Because he loves you. He was willing to go to the cross. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. 
Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.